0: Today is Mother's Day in our country and in in, in in 40 countries in 40 countries around the world there is a holiday a public celebration of mothers that is recognized most commonly this takes place in March and also in May the celebration of mothers is 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 recognized all around the world there's millions of people who are going to be celebrating m- uh, mothers you know uh, this month on this day as well some earlier in the month of March and I'll spare you the reasons why we have Sort of different around the world, different uh, times of celebrating. But suffice it to say, there's, there's millions of people around the world who are celebrating mothers. And this is a testimony to the power of mothers. Indeed, none of us would be here today without a mother carrying us to term and birthing us. Mother's Day is a day for us then to, to see the power of women and, and mothers and femininity and the wondrous gift of procreation that is given to us by God. With that said, the, the, power, the power is not always for good. If your mother abandoned you it could leave a very serious hole if your mother was dysfunctional and selfish it can be quite painful if your mother was overbearing a hyper helicopter parent the damage and the anxiety that that can create is great if your mother was manipulative and a drama queen today can be a hard day you see even in dysfunction moms have a grip on their children they, they have a grip on their children And the the power is what it is because God designed for that bond, as well as the bond of fathers, to shape the lives of children for Him and for His good. With that said, some of you here had godly mothers, and you can attest to the power of God's design in having a godly mother. Your life was blessed by a God-fearing, Bible-reading, no-messing-around mama. And with that said, there are some listening who we want to acknowledge, those of you who are mourning the loss of mothers. Uh, uh, Others are mourning infertility. Others are mourning singleness. And of course, there are some who are enjoying singleness, but maybe you feel left out on holidays like this. There are moms who are mourning the loss of children, and that that loss is heavy. And with this in mind, I want to say up front that we want you to know here at Delray Church that it is okay to cry, blessed are those who mourn. And we also want you to know that it is okay to partay. It's, It's a good day for many. It's a hard day for many. And with that said, what a better day than this. What a better place than this house. What a better book for us to turn to than the Word of God. This morning we are going to be studying 1 Samuel, named after the historic figure Samuel, who the ancient Hebrews would have known as Shemuel. Shemuel, 1 Samuel. We have a First and Second Samuel. Originally they were one scroll. They, they get broken into two in the process of binding and whatnot. So you're going to want to have your Bibles ready to turn to First Samuel, but we're going to make a pit stop that I'll tell you about in just a moment. So in Samuel, we will be reflecting on the life of a mother who suffered and sacrificed for her child, and hence the title of today's message: Suffering and Sacrifice. It should go without saying that being a mother requires both suffering and sacrifice. The act of Carrying a child for many months and birthing a child for many hours if not days alone is one of sacrifice and suffering, let alone the work of the many years of raising a child. Beyond the maternal sacrifice and suffering, in our study today we are going to see a woman of God face deep darkness and by God's grace and God's power, she overcomes and shines brightly. That said, you, you have your Bibles and, and we want to we dig into things, but first let me give you the setting. This morning, as I said, we're going to be studying 1 Samuel, but to give you some context for what we're going to be studying first, we need to make a pit stop in the book of Judges. Now, Judges is just before Samuel. In fact, it is separated by one book, Ruth. So let's turn in our Bibles to Judges. Find your way to the second chapter in Judges. And after this pit stop, then we'll get over to 1 Samuel. But first, we want to get some context, and we'll do so in the book of Judges. Judges gives us historical insight into the moral climate of the days of 1 Samuel. That said, the the book of 1 Samuel opens at a very low point in the history of the nation of Israel. The previous 300 uh, 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 years or so of the the era of the Judges was marked by political, moral, and spiritual anarchy. We get a glimpse of it by reading the book of Judges, where we have records of horrible rebellions of humans against God. Mind you, not any old humans, but these are God's chosen people. The, The descendants of Abram, who become the people of Israel, whom... God called to become a priesthood to the world to reconcile rebellious, rebellious humanity to Himself. So, so, so God elects Abram and and his children, his progeny, and takes them to a place and gives them this promise that they would become a priesthood and they would reconcile fallen humanity to Himself. However, instead of being holy and witnessing to the world of God's graces, they were taking advantage of them in their rebellion. Verse Samuel records how the people rebelled against God by desiring to have an earthly king instead of rightly acknowledging God as their king. And and as as a result of their their loving uh, this king and as a result of being in relationship with him, God would work out this, this thing where they're priests to the entire world. But... But they weren't doing that, and God in his love is responding to their rebellion as any loving father would by disciplining them to bring them to their senses. Sadly, instead of coming to their senses, instead of coming to the father in repentance and faith for their sins, they attributed uh, the, 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 the hardships that they were facing not to the discipline of a loving father. They were attributing it to the lack of an earthly king in their government and nation. And so they were looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. The other nations have kings, and they seem to be prospering, and so that's what we need to do, as opposed to seeing their lack of holiness and their lack of love, not to mention their lack of faithfulness to the covenant that God had given their father Abraham. And so then we turn to the book of Judges, and we turn to the second chapter, we find our way to verse 10. And we read, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and they arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and following other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and and bowed themselves down, and they provoked the Lord to anger. We see the righteous anger of the holy and loving God towards sin. A loving earthly father, of course, would become angry if someone hurt his daughter or hurt his son or let alone burn down his house, any loving father would be upset about those things. How much more would a holy God in the face of of creatures defiling the creation that he made? Uh, So we we see in Judges chapter 2, we see they've provoked God to anger. We see that they are living this life of rebellion. They've been called to be priests to mediate to the fallen world and instead they've collapsed into the world and they're living in sin. Now move from chapter two to chapter 21 to the closing of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, draw your eyes at verse 25. We have a summary a summary statement of the condition of the people. We read in Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. They were positioning to get one, as I said, as opposed to responding in repentance and faith. We'll solve our problems with government solutions instead of coming in repentance and faith. There was no king in Israel because you know the king was their king. And then we read this, this, this closing line, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Though historically this is a little bit later, it's in this spiritual setting of rebellion and relativism, where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, that we enter into the book of 1 Samuel. So with this in mind, move from Judges now over to 1 Samuel. With this chaos and confusion, with this depravity and darkness, we enter 1 Samuel, and we're going to see a beam of light that's shining through the darkness. We meet an incredible woman of faith in 1 Samuel, and since it's Mother's Day, I thought that it would be fitting to exposit a section of Scripture that highlights an amazing woman of God. Today, I want to highlight the significance and the beauty of motherhood by, by, by sharing from the life of an amazing historical figure from the Bible that we meet in First Samuel. We have all had mothers, whether they were good or bad, or perhaps a mixture of the two, it is good to see a positive example in God's Word. Uh, In particular, for us as a congregation, so that we we have an example, something to emulate, something to look up to, something to strive for. Uh, As parents raising daughters, we we have a good idea of what a godly woman looks like. For women in the church to say, you know, this is an example for me to pursue, to follow after. And... Who is this woman? It is the woman Hannah, or as we we popularly say in North American English, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. And that brings us to the next point on our outline. We need to get into the characters of the text, and so you have written out the various characters there. Shemuel, Samuel, Hannah, Hannah, Elkanah, and Penina. Today we're going to be looking at Samuel's mother, Hannah. Hannah was married to a guy named Elkanah. At this point, we're about to enter into the story, and so I need to give you some background with regard to these characters. Hannah was going through a hard time. She was barren. She could not have children. Her, 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 her barrenness was seen as a curse in the culture at the time, and, and, and certainly, in some cases, it, it could indeed be a divine curse from God to bring discipline to draw someone in repentance and faith to himself. In other cases, it's just a part of the fallen world where you know, things in our bodies don't work right. Uh, you get older and you figure that out some who are young and uh, you know and uh, they figure it out even earlier but you know things in your body don't work right not to mention things in our societies don't work right that's part of the fall and in such cases God sometimes intervenes to turn barrenness into blessing in fact there are many stories inside of the Bible with God using barrenness for his glory so Hana is barren the text doesn't say why but as we see God is going to use it for his glory that said Hannah and women in the culture, it would not have felt glorious in that context. Added, it wouldn't have felt glorious for the men who are involved in such instances of barrenness, because barrenness was uh, was a hard thing in that culture, difficult for men and for women. You see, in the ancient culture, uh, children were a, a, a part of of your your livelihood. It's a horticultural society. Children have chores. Those chores contribute to the economy of the family, as well. Your children add to the uh, the the continuation of the family name, which gives security and standing in that culture for your, your, your progeny and also for family property, it's a huge deal. I cannot emphasize that enough. In light of this, how would Elkanah, uh, the husband, feel being married to a woman that can't have a child? Well, in reality, that depends on what kind of a guy Elkanah is, right? So what do we know about Elkanah? Well, Elkanah, unlike his wife Hana, is not so holy. In fact, he was a product of this rebellious culture that we see in the book of Judges and we read in this era of history in the Hebrew Bible. We know, for example, that Elkanah was a polygamist like the pagans of his day. Sidebar, a lot of times people attack the Bible and they'll say things like, there's slavery in the Bible, there's adultery and polygamy in the Bible. And we need to point out, yeah, those are descriptions, not prescriptions. The Bible describes a whole lot of dysfunction and darkness, just like our evening news, right? But we don't watch the evening news and think they're prescribing it although some channels do uh, but you know it's just describing the darkness this is a raw book that describes darkness and here we see this dude Elkanah and he is uh, paganized and he's a polygamist God's Word holds marriage between a man and a woman in the highest of regards but not so for Elkanah in the case of Baroness Elkanah did what was common for men in his day he got a mistress we might say that that was the ancient fertility clinic He shacked up with another woman, and that woman was named Penina. It sounds like, uh, Penina sounds like the sandwich place Panera. Uh, Anyway, I like to just call her Penny. Uh, So Penny is not a nice gal. She too was a product of this rebellious culture. She had uh, nurture from the culture and nature from concupiscence working against her and within her. We see Penny in this historical count is very much a daughter of Eve, living in sin. Penny is seen bullying and belittling Hana. She taunts and torments Hana over something that Hana has no control over. Penny, the bully, goes for the jugular and stigmatizes her sterility. Penny was not only sleeping with Hana's husband, but she also bore Elkanah kids, and, and she never grew tired of reminding Hana of it. Verse 7. Uh, you look at the text of verse 7 you got first Samuel open Hannah is crying Hannah will not eat this is a symptom of depression imagine being in her shoes she had far less than a perfect life she's trapped with a paganized man and then her husband has the nerve to get all whiny look at verse 8 am I not better to you than ten sons Elkanah asks what a narcissist. No, you're a pain in the neck, she might have thought. I, I suppose she could have returned the question. Aren't I better than 10 sons? So then why do you go sleeping around with homewrecker pennies, she could have retorted. Imagine being married into this bunch. And, and might I point out that verse seven described her plight as being, look at verse seven, year after year. This presents a very important life lesson for all of us. How, how many of you know that we face, in our family relationships, we face problems, In our friendships we face problems, in our lives we face problems, and they can go on for years and years before God resolves them or changes the situation from us. It it is a reminder for us to be patient, to wait on the Lord, to trust in Him in life's ups and downs. The scriptures call these seasons, and like seasons they will pass, and like seasons they are not random laws of mother nature, oh no, they are constants held in the providential hand of a loving God. You know, some winters can seem very long when it's cold. And it's hard for us because we live in a culture of instant gratification. When it's cold, we just turn on the heater. We don't, and we don't have to bear, we don't have to bear it being cold because we just turn on the heater. It's in fact, uh, uh, we've got instant gratification working against us, but here in Southern California, we have also got the weather working against us because our seasons aren't that drastic. So, you know, it's like, it's not a big deal to us. Nevertheless, point being, God is good. And God hears our cries year after year after year when we're in the winter. And he is working something out for us, church. Friends, never doubt in the winter that the sun shines in the summer. Listen, we have a tendency to forget the sun when it's cold. We have a tendency to forget the sun, that is Jesus, when times are hard. Let us be reminded that our Savior has took hardship upon himself to give us life And and while he is sanctifying us through hardship by his precious and powerful spirit, God is working out a plan. And that leads me to the question on your outline as we're talking about the context here and we're looking at the characters here. Who is the main character in the story? God is the main character. Not any old God, but the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me emphasize to you up front that when you're reading the narratives of bible these descriptions in the bible they are ultimately not character studies of mortals they are revelations of the immortal one telling us who god is telling us what god is doing in the fallen world and more intimately who god is as revealed in the son who reconciles fallen humanity to the father by the power of the spirit so then while the book is named shemuel or samuel we 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 don't want to read it as a mere story of Samuel or a, a mere story of his mother this Mother's Day. We want to make sure that as we are reading the text, we are seeing the main character who is at work, God. And we want to keep in mind as we're studying Hannah and Samuel, Samuel is this figure who becomes a great prophet and judge who is going to anoint David to be king. And David is the one who points us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate king of kings, the seed of David. The story of samuel then is a part of a greater story of of god the son in the flesh the seed of david and the seed of abram who makes good on the promises of god so now let's move into the story of first samuel chapter one keeping in mind the greater story in which this is situated the opening chapter begins with the context that i've already covered regarding the rebellion and 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 regarding hannah's plight which is the first point on your outline under point two the story hannah's plight Recall what we saw in Judges, rebellion and relativism. Hannah lived in really dark times. To survive, or rather to worship God with her life, she was one who swam upstream. While her family went with the flow, and she suffered for it, her home was no home. Her home was a place of suffering. And I say that knowing that there are some women here who know that. You've married married men who've, who've, who've hurt you, who've cheated on you, who've lied to you, and you know what it is to try and hold things together, and your home isn't Quite a home, it's a place of suffering. And, and in fact, it was, it was bad at home for Hana, and it was bad at church. Of course, we're in a different dispensation, so this is the era of Israel, but I'm just saying that colloquially. at this time, it is the time of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in dysfunction too. So she, she couldn't go to church, she couldn't go home. It was, it was all bad all the time. Draw your eyes at the second chapter of First Samuel. We're going to jump ahead so you see some context, and then we 'll back up. Kana wasn't even fully aware of this at the time, but 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, the sons of Eli, these are the sons of the high priest, look at verse 12, they were incredible guys. No, it says they were worthless men. And then what does it say? They did not know the Lord. They are worthless men. In Hebrew, it says, Bene, Beli, Ya'al. Bene means worthless or wicked or lawless. Uh, beli, Ya'al bel yaal also means a worthless one or a wicked one, so it's redundant. Bene bel yaal it's like wicked, wicked, okay? Worthless, wicked. And in fact, listen to the Hebrew again. You Bible students might catch this. Bel-i-ya'al. 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 Are you familiar with the name bel This is a term that is used in the Bible for Satan. Belial, these are sons of Satan. It is is worse than sort of being worthless or wicked. The language here uh, uh, brings up the ultimate wicked one. It is worth noting that the Jewish apostle Paul translated the the Greek word Belial from the Hebrew Belial in one of his letters to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you can write it down, verse 15, when he asked the question, what harmony does Christ have with Belial? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? These are the workers of the temple or the tabernacle, the sons of Eli, and they are aligned with Bilal. The sons of Eli might have claimed that they didn't get the memo, but the law of Moses very clearly was against the things that we see described here in the second chapter if you look at verse 13 through 16. And you you can read while I'm talking. These worthless sons are taking more than what Moses allotted in God's law, and they're offering sacrifices in a sacrilegious behavior, if you're reading the text. And further, they are bullies. Look at the text in the second half of verse 16. It says, No, you shall give it to me, and if not, I will take it by force. These are the priests, jacking fools, just taking stuff from people. They're gangsters. And notice how God's Word describes them. Verse 17, the sin of the young men. It says, "It is very great before the Lord. Notice how it describes God's response. The, The men despise the offering of the Lord. You see, you see God's anger against this. You, you see their disposition of rebellion. They, they, they're despising the offerings of the Lord. And the same thing, this is the same thing that we saw in the book of Judges. It's, it's still going on, this relativism and this rebellion. Yet again, we see the Holy God responding with patience and compassion. And He is patiently unfolding a plan through all of this rebellion. That brings us to the next point. We move from Hana's plight to Hana's purpose move from chapter 2 back to chapter 1 chapter 1 verse 9 we will pick up we've seen the darkness at the church or the tabernacle and we've seen the darkness at home and what's going on with her husband uh, she is going to have to swim upstream against the culture but her home and and, and her church are just going to go along with the flow the pastor or rather the priest and her husband are both corrupt in verses 1 through 8 we see the mess at home and now in verse 9 she heads to church we jumped into chapter 2 just to give you a little backstory of how bad it was. But she heads in verse 9 up to church to find some hope, the tabernacle. okay And, 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 and we already know what's going on there, but she doesn't know. So enter into the text, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. Then Hannah rose, eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the high priest, was sitting at the seat and in the doorpost of the temple of God. She was greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, no, and don't forget your maidservant, God, but, but give your maidservant a son, and then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never touch his head. What's wrong with a razor touching your head? Anyway, uh, I'll get to that. So Hanah, uh, and all the bald guys want to know, right? Uh, Hanah wants a child. Hanah is barren. And I've known women who've struggled with this and know the pain of barrenness. And in her pain, Hana reasons with God. If you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. The promise to never cut a hair this isn't a, a dig against Gillette and bald men in the house this isn't uh, you know this isn't the ancient Adams family cousin it running around or whatever uh, this it, you're, if you're too young you Google it later this is a practice of vow making it's likely an indication uh, that she knows God's Word this is found in a section of the Hebrew Bible that she would have had access to number six it's known as the Nazarite vow the Nazarite vow was a very special religious oath of dedication now, think about this vow. Think about the culture of the era. Children, again, they're everything to them. I've said that. They're, they're everything to them. So she, she's vowing not just to not cut his hair, but to give the child to the tabernacle for good. She's going to give the child away to become a, a servant in the tabernacle. And we've already seen the corruption going on in the tabernacle. So yeah, yeah, give us your boy. We'll, we'll put him to use. He could do the chores, and we'll just keep on doing our shenanigans. She, she, she will have a child only to lose a child let alone to the corrupted place where God's sacrifices were being pimped out by hustler priests. In the original context, losing one's only son was tremendous. I cannot say this enough. Children were culturally everything to them. That said, in our culture, it's progressively the opposite. Let me take a little sidebar. We literally kill children in the womb in our culture. In fact, we do so with legal protection. So more specifically than killing, it's execution. That is the taking of life with the powers of the state. More than 63 million abortions are estimated to have taken place in the United States since the Supreme Court's 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade, ruling that granted federal protections quote unquote, of women seeking to terminate their pregnancies would, would be given. And in a nation that has been torn by tremendous racial history and ongoing racial tensions, we, you know, we look at this and we see how this machine of the abortion industry has systemically targeted people of color. I mean, disproportionately slaughtering people of color. And, 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 the, and the founders and the trailblazers of this thing were eugenicists who were given over to white supremacy and wanted to, to beat down minority communities in the taking of life. And it, is it no surprise then that you see, quote-unquote, planned parenthood that has nothing to do with planning parenthood and everything to do with the taking of life in neighborhoods of, of poverty and minority neighborhoods? And, and, and you see this going on in our culture, where it's like you, you can see the dark wing of racism from the past still lingering. And you could see sort of the Hollywood magic of sprinkles that gets put on top of this. That we, This has nothing to do with the taking of life, and it has everything to do with choice. And some have been hoodwinked and bamboozled to believe these things. And some among us carry the scars of those things. And might I say up front that there is hope in Christ for healing and restoration, it's not the kind of guilt that you need to carry if you were led astray by these things, but it is one that you need to lift and find forgiveness and love and peace and shalom in the Lord. But in our culture, we, 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 we've been told you know, that, 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 that children are objects of disposal. Children, in fact, are just that. They're objects. And so we, we could take their lives... In our culture, we have vile acts of abuse, uh, perversion, of uh, pornography, labor exploitation with regards to children. they are objects that we, can, that we can torture, that we can use for lust, that we can discard. That's one extreme. And in another extreme, children are just viewed as, as unwanted. We have cruises and theaters and restaurants with no children allowed, and we advertise it as a good. We joke about getting away from our kids and longing to see them to be 18 so that we can kick them out and get our lives back. We've got these extremes where children are are unwanted and children are unwelcome. In our culture's ivory towers, there is a movement known as antinatalism that is slowly trickling down the streams of our culture. Antinatalists argue that humans should abstain from procreation because it is morally wrong. For example, professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town, Dr. David Benatar, he wrote this book. Better never to have been subtitled the harm of coming into existence. He contends it's wrong to have children. And I quote, each one of us has been harmed by being brought into existence. That harm is not negligible because the quality of even the best lives is very bad and considerably worse than most people recognize it to be. Although it is obviously too late to prevent our own existence, it is not too late to prevent the existence of future possible people, end quote. And this guy is the director of bioethics. Uh, at at the center in Cape Town. Well, suffice it to say, such nonsense philosophy would have never gotten off the ground in Hanath's day. In the ancient world, it was a wonderful gift for a man and a woman to have a child, unlike modern antinatalism that wrongly and foolishly claims that it is actually immoral for a man and a woman to create life. But then again, speaking of a man and a woman, in our day, that is also up for grabs, isn't it? Uh, We reflect on these, noting that the difference from our world with the ancient world that we have in front of us in 1 Samuel. And we reflect on these so that hopefully we can get some perspective. In Hannah's world, children were deeply desired, and further, being a man and a woman was not a politically incorrect thing that triggered Karens or guys with knives to rush stages, as we saw this week, attacking a comedian known for jokes um, around uh, the science of gender. One might say, well, speaking of science, if you want to bring up science, Pastor Matt, You and your religion, and this book, 1 Samuel, and that lady Hannah, that's all before an era of science. So, if by science you mean secular empiricism, sure, but ancients had science, and besides, that's neither here nor there with regard to this matter that I'm talking about. The scientific fact are there are male and female. It's about as basic as the law of gravity. Females have two X chromosomes. Males have one X and one Y chromosome. Aside from anatomy, it's very, it's very easily proven in DNA, and it, it's, in fact, it's very easily proven in a test of urine. Not to be crass here, but urine cells from the urinary tract, every time you pee, you have scientific evidence of your gender, whether you're male or female. And long before the ability to take a urine test, you could just observationally see this. Whether a person stands or whether they sit or squat, there you go, you can tell observationally. I don't need to get a pee test uh, in my house to to look at the toilet seat and see whether it was the boys or the girls who (laughs) left the mess. It's not rocket science. Bottom line, it is observationally clear and science confirms what we see. Meanwhile, we have politicians in power saying the absurd when it comes to gender. Politicians in, in power when asked what is male and female responding, and I quote, I am not a biologist. Listen, I don't need a degree in biology to tell if you, if that a male has an X and a Y chromosome, uh, to tell male plumbing further, or that females have two X chromosomes in female plumbing. And yes, there are very rare cases of abnormality where hermaphroditism occurs. But this does not undo the basic science or create a gateway drug for undoing gender. That is biologically and logically absurd. In any case, we have found ourselves in the absurd. A very powerful minority of rich and influential institutional powers have managed to demonize and cancel those who dare to stand with science and gender, let alone scripture. Those who believe in science and the biology of gender, not to mention common sense, are vilified by secular forces today. We are told by the thought police and the politically correct Gestapo that sex and gender are just social constructs that are imposed on us by sexist patriarchal culture, but really, There is no such thing, they say. There is no such thing as male and female. Well, science begs to differ, not to mention common sense. But alas, common sense is not so common. So we're seeing wars now around men competing in female sports. We recently saw on national news a male swimmer who ranked 65th in the 500 freestyle and 554th in the 200. This male took surprise, surprise, first in the freestyle at the NCAA Division I Women's Swimming Championship. Moving from national news to more local news, we've seen battles over bathrooms that are male and female. They say, oh, you know, that that's patriarchal, that's sexist, you shouldn't have male and female bathrooms, everyone should be able to choose where they want to go. And so men can we- use women's restrooms, which in a culture with real objectification of children, pedophilia, rape, porn, so on, it's very concerning to say the least. And now in Oregon, we recently have been watching the news, if you have your eyes open, the so-called Menstrual Dignity Act that requires schools to place feminine products in boys' bathrooms. In case girls who identify as boys, but clearly aren't, uh, you know, because they need to have access to actual things that help their plumbing that match their gender. Mind you, I'm not suggesting that gender dysphoria is not real. Of course it is real. Nor am I suggesting that the battle line is over the bathroom. Furthermore, I'm not suggesting that these matters call for anything other than great compassion. Indeed, confusion must be met by God's people with genuine compassion. Not the rage that you see on the evening news. I'm talking about genuine Christian compassion. Our culture is so confused. Our culture needs to hear the compassion and feel the compassion. Our our culture needs to hear of God and His grace and Christ to save us and to to heal us. Our culture needs to hear of, of, of sin and its effects and that all of this is just symptoms of that greater issue. Meanwhile, this week, out of nowhere, when Roe v. Wade popped back in the news, all the secularists all of a sudden knew what a woman was all of a sudden. In D.C., we had angry crowds at the Capitol Square protesting, states having a right to choose uh, human life. Hundreds filled in the downtown on Tuesday. People were going nuts. So if you watched the news this week, well, there was a shamefully leaked SCOTUS discussion about Roe v. Wade, questioning whether it should be turned to the states imagine that, to make their own decisions about whether their tax dollars should go to feeding the execution and racist machine of abortion. With that, if there is no gender, why do they say women should have a right to choose? Women should have a right. Well, what about the men who have babies too, right? Isn't that a part of your platform? After all, can't men get pregnant? It wasn't that long ago. Here's a story from 2019 in The Guardian. of The dad who gave birth, being pregnant doesn't change me as a trans man. The, the title reads so to be clear I'm not making any claims about the freedoms of one's body unlike abortion this 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 instance here is is a, a woman's body if she wants to take drugs to grow a mustache or pay a surgeon to chop off parts of her body or surgically add things to her body that's between her and her physicians and the authorities in charge of medical and mental practice and drug matters related to it while I personally would want to appeal to this woman, or to a man doing the reversal of these things, that has nothing to do with Roe v. Wade, because in this, in this case, you, yeah, that's your body, you can knock yourself out, do whatever you want with it. But in the case of abortion, we're not talking about a woman's body, we're talking about a baby's body. So never mind that only women can get pregnant. And let's never mind how insulting it is to suggest that women can only plan their pregnancies by abortion. Let's talk about the fact that abortion is not a woman's body, it's a baby's body. One might argue it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Okay, but fetus is the Latin word for baby. So let's start again. We're talking about a baby. A fetus is a baby, a human baby. All the DNA is there, the heartbeat, the face, the hair, the organs, the feelings. It's a separate human, it's not the woman's body. A woman doesn't have two hearts and two brains and four lungs and 20 fingers and 20 toes and four kidneys, the act of abortion is not a mere altering of a woman's body, it is the removing of a separate body. And this week our president was asked while standing at, at, at Andrew's Air Force Base about the leaked SCOTUS document, and, and he said, well, I mean, uh, so uh, the idea we're going to make a judgment that is going to say no one can make a judgment to choose to abort a child, based on a decision of the Supreme Court, so I, I think it goes way overboard. And yet there it is out of your own mouth abort a child this is not my body this is not about women's reproductive rights it, it, this is about aborting a child in of all places in the land that claims it believes that all humans are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights and among them are life life abortion takes life clearly this is not a do what you want to do with your body issue no one is saying you can't get a tattoo Ladies, you can't get your ears pierced. Ladies, you can't cut your hair. That, that's your body. You can cut your hair, you can tattoo yourself, you can do whatever you want to do. Similarly, those who are born men, if they want to surgically add things to their bodies to look like women, if you want to do a Bruce Jenner or whatever, I, knock yourselves out, that's your body. Do, you know, that's you. Forget it, but at the end of the day, forget about standing before the government and the public. Ultimately, we will stand before God because God is the one who's given us our bodies And our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to him. And and our culture needs to realize this. Uh, Last night, I caught some snippets from SNL, that wonderful bastion of all all things good. And, uh, you know, SNL starts off last night, of course, with mocking, mocking life, and twisting and distorting the details. It was absolutely surreal. And I say, Pastor Matt, I thought you don't do politics in the pulpit. I don't. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about life and death talking about things the Scriptures talk about. I'm talking about our culture that progressively is spiraling into a culture of death and disdain for children. I'm talking about this world that we're studying in 1 Samuel that was so much different. And for the ancients, how serious it was to them. Not, 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 not for emotional reasons, but also these cultural and economic reasons. They, they built their whole economy around this. Like the, the children were involved, they, they, they worked, and families worked, and this, this wasn't the crazy thing that has become today. You know, you know and, and, and so in light of this, consider the vow that Hannah is making. God, I will give my child up. In this setting, her vow is very serious. In fact, it would seem to suggest that her desire for a son was not cultural, it's expected for women to have babies in this culture. It's not cultural. It's not economic. We need the babies to survive. It's not emotional. I, I, I need this. I need to put it on my Instagram pictures of my kids so I feel like I'm keeping up with my friends from high school or whatever. The, the women in the village could say, where are your children? Has God cursed you? you and you can't you know, say, oh, well, I had a lot of kids. I just gave them all to the tabernacle. You know, that, no, no, no. If that were the case, Hannah could have just said that to Penny when Penny was bullying her and just said, Well, I had a lot of kids. I give them to the tabernacle. If that, that, that's not what's going on here. Her reason for desiring this child isn't to get Penny off her back. It's not to have pictures on Instagram. It's not to solve her own emotions. Her reason for wanting to have a child is theological. We see this in her prayer as we study this text. She might have struggled with feeling like less of a woman. She might have deep down wanted to get Penny off her back to stop gloating. But ultimately, there's something deeper that is driving her. Hannah is a worshiper of God. Hannah is a theologian. She understood the the deeper things of God. And so she prayed and she submitted her desires to the Lord. And did you notice in verse 8, when it mentioned the priest named Eli, it says in verse 8, he was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So she goes to the temple. She goes to the spiritual head of the people. Her her, her desires are worship. She goes to the temple. Her desires are submission. She goes to the high priest. Look at verse 12. It came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she she was speaking with her heart. uh, And only her lips were moving, but her mouth was not heard. And so Eli thought she was drunk. Let's stop for a second. A very interesting phrase here. uh, Praying before the Lord. This occurs for the first time in the Hebrew Bible here. It, it, it means being uh, in the tabernacle or what would become the temple. She's in Shiloh. And there is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where God dwelt. And so to be before the, the dwelling of God is to be in his presence. Notice in verse 12 the emphasis that she continued to pray. We saw earlier year after year. I talked about seasons. And she's in the midst of this heavy season year after year. When it's cold, you don't, you don't want to doubt the sun. So, so, so year after year, juxtapose that with her continued prayer. She, she, she's relentless. And while she prayed, Eli is there and he's within hearing distance and as well seeing distance. For the text tells us that Eli saw her lips and didn't hear anything. Maybe she's drunk, he thought. Maybe Eli was losing his hearing. Eli, Eli said to her, verse 14, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. Man, that must have been so embarrassing to be going through so, so much that she's going through and to go to the house of God to, to, to worship, to find hope, to find help, to find healing. And then, and then, and, and then the, you know, the head runs out and is accusing you of, of taking shots and, and being liquored up. So Hannah, verse 15, she, she replies, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit, and I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord." It is interesting in the text that these are the first words that come out of the mouth of Hannah. The very first words that come out of her mouth are, no, no. She's silent when Penny taunts her. She's silent when the enemy attacks her. And here she speaks. And she speaks with respect. She calls him Sir, Lord. And and Hannah describes herself as pouring out her soul to, to Yahweh. She uses the divine name of the God of Israel, the personal name of the God of Israel. As I said, she's a theologian. She denotes pouring out her soul in its entirety. Hannah is a light in the darkness. She's a model for Mother's Day and more. Let's continue reading. Verse 16. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now, and great is my concern and provocation. Earlier recall in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, I shared with you the Hebrew for Eli's sons. They were Balal. Here Hannah says, Bath, Beli, ya'al. Bath is a feminine way of saying it. Bath, Beli, I'm not with Balal. I'm not on that team. I'm the opposite of Eli's sons. Mind you, this is chapter 1. Chapter 2 comes later. So that sets the stage for when you get in chapter 2 and you read that. You see she's the antithesis of Eli and his sons. Draw your eyes at the text. Verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you the petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maid find favor in your sight. And so the woman went away and she ate and her face was no longer sad. God has removed her heart of sadness. He, he, he has filled her with faith. He has taken her depression and he has lifted her up. In verses 19 through 20 of the first chapter, we read about how God answered her prayer. That brings us from Hannah's plight and purpose to Hannah's prize next on your outline. Hannah becomes pregnant, she gives birth to a son who she names Shemuel, Samuel. Look at verse 20. Came about in due time, Hannah conceived, she gave birth to a son, she named him Shemuel, Samuel, saying, because I have asked of the Lord. Now the name Samuel, Shem means name, El means God. Uh, The name of God, Shemuel, Uh, Shema means hear, El means God, heard from God. Uh, By naming him this, Hannah is admitting this isn't a fluke of nature that allowed her to become pregnant. Rather, she was heard from God, and this child is from God, and she's received this prize, and now we move on the outline from plight to purpose to prize to the predicament. Now that she has birthed the child, will she go through with it? Or will someone tell her this isn't necessary? Remember, we're reading a description, not a prescription. The text isn't telling us what Hana's doing is something that you ought to do as well. It's just a description. Recall two weeks ago when we had the, the extended sermon on first fruits. And I related to you in that message on first fruits, the theme of the firstborn. And we saw in the law of Moses that the firstborn was not to be given away at the tabernacle. The firstborn was to be redeemed with an offering. That's what the law of Moses teaches. So again, this is a description, not a prescription, because the law of Moses prescribes what is to be done. In other words, people weren't supposed to do what she was doing. So the predicament at hand is, will the priest say, you don't have to do this. The law of Moses says, you don't have to do this. Will her husband intervene? surely men you would stop your wives if they tried to give your children to I don't know uh, Joel Osteen's church or something you know you go no you're not gonna do that Uh, Elkanah is a polygamist he shows no care for her but still the text describes him as religious look at verse 21 Elkanah went up with his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow now you have to keep in mind here that Israel's a theocracy church and state are together It is your civic responsibility to go there. I submit to you that what we see with Elkanah isn't genuine faith; it's civic religion. Aren't we glad we don't have that anymore? Uh, You know, it's civic religion. The narrative suggests Elkanah is a civic religion kind of guy. Perhaps he goes to the tabernacle as well, just to get away from the mess that he has made at home. You know, I got to get out of here. You know, you know, I got to go to the temple. See you you later, Penina and Hannah. Hannah did not go. Verse 22. She said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is winged, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Now, as a husband, that's when you say, oh, heck to the nah, you're not going to take my kid down there and leave him there forever? Look, Elkanah has no fight in the game. Seemingly, no awareness of his biblical duty to lead his family and raise his son in the Torah of God. The text describes him going to the tabernacle, but there's no description of worship the way the worship of Hanaz is described hanah is genuine not elkanah it seems that elkanah is just going through the motions civic religion then again maybe there could be a mixture of sincerity in it in the sacrifices and it gets lost in the compromise of the priests. elkanah in many ways could be a product of the corrupt uh, culture of, of of the tabernacle at the time he's torn no doubt he's a complex character the text says in 1 samuel chapter 1 verse 5 look at that that he loved Hanah. I think it's hard for us to understand because it's foreign to our culture. You know, you go, you got mistresses, you're doing pagan goofball stuff. What do you mean you love her? Uh, you know, and we think our, our 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 country was built on a Christian ethic that viewed polygamy as wrong because that's what God's word taught and uh, you know, and, and so we can look at Elk and I go, "Hey, why don't you get that?" But in our culture, we have our own blind spots. We we might not allow for polygamy in our culture in terms of law, but we allow for pornography, alcoholism, obesity, materialism, racism, injustice, pineapple on pizza, just just seeing if you're paying attention. I actually like pineapple on pizza, but anyway. Uh, Many women live with Christian men who are morally compromised, who have no control over their passions, and they do what is right in their own eyes. Hannah was married to such a man, and certainly it seemed normal in that day. It was just as normal as the... Bachelor party in our culture. In our culture, a man celebrates the fact that he has a bride by looking at other naked women and becoming inebriated. Imagine that. I love you so much, honey. I love you so much, I'm willing to get drunk and look at other women to show my love. It's absurd. But nevertheless, it's a product of a culture where, you know, it, it happens and people don't bat their eyes at No, look at this. Look at this guy. Like, his heart is torn, he's caught up in the mix. Look at verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. There we see the relativism at play. Re- remain until you've weaned him. The Lord will confirm His word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned. If only Elkanah knew the actual word of God. Till the Lord confirms His word. That's like, like the nonsense that goes on today with people. Well, you know, God told me type stuff. You go, but the actual word begs to differ. What does the actual word say in the law of Moses with regard to the firstborn? What are you supposed to do? What should the priest do? What should Elkanah do? Oh, you know, do whatever you want to do. And you know, you know, you know. No, 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 look at her. She's crying. Look at what's going on, man. Verse 24, she weaned her son. She took him up. He's three, a three-year-old bull. One ephah of flour, a jug of wine, and she brought it to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young, and then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the boy to Eli. And she said, "Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, oh my Lord, I am the woman who stood there and I prayed to the Lord, and this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me the petition of which I asked him, so I dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he, Shemuel, worshiped the Lord there. Now notice, the husband isn't mentioned here. Sort of like when Eve ate from the tree. It's like, hey, Adam, where are you? He, he's not there. In fact, in the verses before, Elkanah is kind of antsy to get, get the kid out of there and get him to Eli, but Hanah insisted, no, I need to wean him first. And, and in that culture, we know from, uh, you know, uh, from texts from the ancient world, like 2 Mac- Maccabees 727, that kids weaned around 3 to 4 years old. So if you want to put a face on it, that's my little guy, Obi. Can you imagine Erica taking Obi and donating him to, I don't know, Calvary Chapel or something? Heck no. That's not going down. You know, in, in, in the notes, in, in, in my personal notes in this passage, studying this text over the years. I take notes on different passages and I pull them up when I'm writing sermons. Um, I I found a note as a new dad about how hard it is to be away from my kids. And I I wrote this note. I'm going to try not to cry uh, because it's about my son here who's sitting in the front row. And I found this note. It said, Micah spent the night at his grandma's this week and I get sad when he's not around. I can't imagine giving my child away emotionally. I wrote that here in this first Samuel, just in my own personal. And speaking of Micah, many of you have been around the church know that our family is a combination of adoption and uh, popping them out. That's the scientific term there. Uh, we started our family with adoption. Uh, Micah's adoption is an open adoption. His, bi- his biological parents, uh, amazing, loving people. You get involved in adoption and you meet uh, parents and we're in this broken world, and there are people who have children that they love, and they can't, they can't keep. There are various forces and systems and, you know, personal sin and all kinds of things that come up in the mix of this. You, you know, you look at Hanap, and, you, and you're, you, she wants to keep that kid. But that culture, that priest, that Eli, Elkanah, all of them, she's got all these things against her, but God's using it all. Last week, one of my younger sons, who's adopted, shared with me that he was being teased by some kids at sports for being adopted. And I said, what are are they saying to you? What are they saying to you? He said, oh, they they, they tell me that my mom didn't want me. I said, what a a horrible thing to say. You know, kids can be so cruel. So I teach my kids to be cruel, too. So I tell them, uh, when when they say that to you, you say, well, your mom just had you, but my mom chose me. You know, you got to have some comebacks. The thing is, many who are adopted have biological mothers who love them. And, and, I, and I know godly women who put their children up for adoption, and Mother's Day rolls around, you, you feel certain ways with this. Look, there's, this life is hard. That's why I love the Bible. You get these raw stories, and they're so complex, and these characters that are flawed and messed up. And we're reminded in all of this that, that humans aren't the heroes. We, we need the main character, God, to come into this darkness and rescue us. Hannah isn't, isn't the one who's mustering this within herself. She's not holy on her own or righteous on her own. It is the gift of God that no human may boast. Hannah herself has been adopted by God. And the language of Scripture to describe our salvation is, this, is just that, adoption. We have all been adopted by God. Because we are born children of Eve and Adam. We are born in the fall. We are born outside of his family. And God saw fit, the holy God who is, to send his son to reconcile sons and daughters to him through the work of the son who would die on a cross for us, who would rise up from the grave and and would punk the kingdom of darkness, death itself. And so we, we, we gather in church to hear this good news. I'd be a derelict of a preacher to not proclaim this good news. Hannah, Hannah is one who, is, who has been rescued by God. Everything is stacked against her. You can't make logical, sociological sense out of this. Hannah, Hannah is rejoicing in the God who is. Draw your eyes back at the text. We move to the next point. We move from Hannah's predicament to Hannah's prayer. She gives up the child. Chapter 2, verse, verse 1. Panah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Her enemies are not Penina and Eli and Elkanah. The language here isn't personal rivalries. The language here is of the Philistines. It's of the nations against the people. This is redemptive historical language. Her horn is exalted. The horn in the Hebrew Bible is messianic prophecy. She's, she's longing for a messianic figure who will come and will bring God's kingdom. There is no one like the holy God, verse 2. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there a rock like our God. Boast no more very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And his actions are weighed, and the, 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 the bows of the mighty, they're shattered. And the feeble gird their strength, and those who are full hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry cease to be hungry, and even the barren gives birth to seven. And she who has many children languishes. Hannah is offering up this prayer as she has given her child. You say, how do you make sense out of this? This is God's grace. Notice the reversal here. The full are running out and the hungry are becoming full. Notice the reversal here. This, this poor barren woman who God is exalting over the men, over the high priest in that culture, how radical that was. Verse 6, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive and He brings down to Sheol, And He raises up. The Lord makes the poor rich. He brings the low and also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the nobles and to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. And he keeps the feet of of, of the godly ones. But the wicked, those are silenced in the darkness. And and, and not by by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, her prayer is about something bigger than her plight. Her hope is in the horn, the anointed one. Christ means anointed. Messiah means anointed. Here you see a lot of theology, and there's not time for me to unpack it all, but again, going back to what I said earlier, Hannah is a theologian. She understood who God was and what God was up to. She was, she was longing for the day to see the one who would come. There is not time to get into this, but I would be remiss if I didn't point it out to you. Write it down in your notes somewhere. You need to study this week while it's fresh on your mind. Luke chapter 1, verses 46-55. through 55. The Magnificat of Mary parallels Hannah's prayer. And the themes you see in both of them, they're amazing. You need to study these. You need to to see Luke 1 and 1 Samuel 2 and study them together. And and not just the prayers, but the persons, Hannah and Mary. Both are without child. Both are empty vessels used by God. Both gave birth to sons who would become prophets to the nation of Israel. Samuel would anoint King David, and Mary's son would be the anointed seed of David. You see the fulfilling of the promises when you situate this story in the greater story. Moving on the outline so that we can land the ship, we move to Hannah's promise. Verse 11, then Elkanah went home at Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So the family goes home, and Shemuel stays. And the passage goes on in verse 12 through 17 to speak of Eli's sons. We already looked at that, and we saw their shenanigans and, and, and the rest. They were characteristic of the day. And the irony in the verses is that we, we, we have this strong mother who gives her child to the Lord's service, and we've got this weak father, Eli, whose children are defaming the Lord's service, Phineas and Hophni. And, be, and because of this, we look to Hannah and not to Eli. The passage shows Hannah. Uh, being involved in her child's life. We move from the promise next to the passion. Look at verse 18 and 19. Shemuel's ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. This is uh, the outfit of, of, a, of a priest. And the mother would make him a little robe and would bring it to him year for year, and she would come with her husband to offer yearly sacrifice. He, he's, he's, he's growing in the graces of God. And you see her passion for him. She goes to see him she, she cares for him. You see her heart through this. And again, where is Elkanah? The, the narrative is masterful in the way it's, it's describing, but in what it leaves out and what it includes, you get the moral assessment there. See the promise. See the passion. Now see Hannah's prospect. Verse 20. Eli would bless Elkanah. You get a little Elkanah reference in passing here in the wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in the place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home, and the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Shemuel, Samuel, grew before the Lord. Now again, it's a bigger, there's a bigger story, it's more than these characters. I've described Hannah as an example, and she is, but the story is not a mere moral lesson or a character study. The passage is situated in the bigger story. Again, what is the bigger story? Salvation history. God is redeeming from the world a people for himself. And God's people are in bad times, and immorality is reigning. There was no hope for revival. They they didn't have revival coming. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, as we saw. But God, in his grace, said, I'm going to raise up one who will be the prophet and priest to the people. And Samuel turns as a type of of Christ. There's shadows in, in, in the Christ. The humbled mother who is used in God's plan to bring in the figure who who will cry out to the people. Hannah and Samuel, we see Mary and Jesus, the eternal son in the flesh who would exalt God's plan and bring salvation to his people. We saw the setting. We, we saw the story. Now we move to the final point on your outline, the solutions. It's Mother's Day. We've studied an amazing mother. We've compared their culture to our culture and looked at the mess of our culture and, 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 and to do so so we don't stand above the text and think, oh, they were so bad and we've got it all figured out. no. There are many lessons that can be learned from this text and many gospel gems. In terms of the gospel gems, I shared with you about the bigger story. We began with Judges. First Samuel is a bridge, so Judges and 1 Samuel then bridges us over into David. God promised to David that he would bring one who would rule perpetually. Long before, God promised Abram that a king would come through his line, Genesis 17.6 and 17.16 he repeated that promise to jacob in genesis 35 11. moses revealed that god would raise up a king from his own choosing in deuteronomy 17 and to david he said one would sit on his throne who would rule and reign forever and then the prophet priest samuel comes and he transitions us from from the depravity from the relativism uh, on the rebellion and all of that into this era of monarchy post-conquest madness to monarchy and messianic hopes Samuel is a priest and a prophet who anoints David, whose lineage is the one through whom the Messiah Jesus comes. David himself is filled with shadows of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, works as a shepherd, God's chosen king. In the Psalms, David cries out with messianic themes of suffering and, and rejection, giving readers revelation of the Messiah to come. Hannah speaks of the anointed one we saw in her prayer and God's power over life and death and even the afterlife. Again, verse 10, Contend with the Lord against him, the thunder of heavens. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. As you keep reading 1 Samuel, God judges. Eli and his sons fall. The ark of God is captured by enemies. The darkness thickens, but the hope of Hana shines. It is all a reminder to us that in times of darkness such as this, where we place our hope. We place our hope in the king who is to come. There is no earthly explanation for Hana. God was at work in her. What what do most parents want for their children? What do you want for your children? For the most part, the answer in our culture is fame and fortune, position and power. Unfortunately, many parents seek to live their lives through their children's lives. Not Hannah. She wanted God to live through her child. She gave her child to the tabernacle where God did just that. He lived through Samuel to bring grace to the undeserving. God brought a prophet to the sons of Eli. And God used this sacrifice to raise up Samuel for mighty things. There's loads of gospel gems, loads of lessons. Hannah is filled with many examples for us. She modeled what it is to never stop praying. She's an example of being real with God. She wasn't pretentious. She poured out her soul to God. I think of the Pharisee that described himself uh, praying to himself that Jesus spoke about with the Pharisee and the publican. She's not praying to herself. She's crying out to God, and it's, it's raw, and she brings her heart to God. This passage records a narrative of this woman that gives us a great example. It, it, it records a narrative that gives us hope that in dark times, God can send prophetic mouthpieces to point the culture back to Him. A faithful mother who cried out to God. Oh, that God would give us faithful mothers crying out for their children today and fathers. Hannah did, and it brought one of the mightiest prophets that Israel had ever known. Church, will you pray and believe for God to raise up a Samuel in this generation for this city and the darkness around us? Will you sacrifice to this end? Let me close with a story. 17-year-old William Patton McKay. He left his Scottish home to attend college. His mother, when he went off to college, gave him a Bible. She wrote his name in the Bible and a verse of scripture. College was only the beginning of a lifestyle which saddened his godly mother. At one point, he sank so low that he pawned his Bible to buy whiskey. His mother prayed for him until she died. Eventually, McKay became a doctor in a city hospital. One day, true story, one day a dying patient asked for his book. After the man died, McKay was curious to know what the book was why it was so precious he searched around the hospital room and he was surprised to find the very Bible that he pawned years before for booze. he went into his office he gazed at the familiar writing of his mother noticing the many pages with underscored verses from his mother and his mother's hopes that that he would read after spending many hours in his office McKay knelt and he prayed to God for mercy and salvation McKay the physician you don't know his name. He later became an incredible minister and a hymn writer. The book that he once treated so lightly became his precious possession. And it all began with a mother who was praying. And he was raised up to do mighty things. My my grandmother, who's probably watching this online right now, was struggling with dementia. And Whether or not she even knows who I am, or I'm just some preacher at this point that my mom has on on the computer for her to watch. My grandma has Bibles like this with my name written in the columns. And when I go up and visit, I always open them up. And I'm floored. Because God, before the foundations of the world, saw fit to rescue a people for himself. And he ordained to use the prayers and the sacrifices of people to draw them to himself. Never stop praying for the prodigals in your life. Never stop praying for revival in this city. Never stop praying for revival in this church. And we will see the power of God come through suffering and sacrifice. Mothers, be encouraged this day. God is at at, at work to use you for mighty things. As we come to close our service in song, we respond in coming to the Lord's table where we have pictured before us the sacrifice of our Lord, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. You have the invitation to come and eat. More importantly, you have the invitation not just to eat and to drink, but to be saved by Him, sanctified by Him, renewed in Him, and have all your sins covered. And you're invited to join in his people in this age as we go to the ends of the earth and herald the one who has come and shall return. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, we thank you for your love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. We thank you for the ministry of your word, and this great section of Holy Scripture in 1 Samuel that brings us from post-conquest judges into the monarchy, and into the hopes of a Davidic king Father, we we hear the cry of your son in the words of the gospel that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the king offered the kingdom to the people and was rejected. We follow this whole storyline that you ordained to use rejection to bring redemption. And Lord, we are all rebels in this room. So we confess our rebellion. And we thank you that you rescued enemies and made them sons and daughters. And you went behind enemy lines to... Rescue us, prisoners of war, and to bring us home. And so, Lord, may we know your peace. The war has been ended in the cross and in the resurrection. May we rest in your peace here today as we celebrate the table and as we join our, 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 our lips in, in song and praise. Receive these songs of worship, our offerings, and as we come to the table, Lord, oh God, move through this time. In Christ's name, amen.